So this is our continuing reading group on Simone Don's individuation in light of notions of form and information. We're starting from page 296 of the translation. We're on the, uh, I believe, the second chapter in the, yeah, oh, sorry, third chapter in the part on psychic individuation. Uh, and then we're on subsection three of that chapter. So the, the title is Individuation, Individualization, and Personalization by Substantialism. Um, so last time we, we saw this introduction of, of the term individualization as opposed to individuation, which sort of complicates our, our picture of what's going on. Uh, and we'll see in the reading for today about what the relationship is between these two terms or how we should think about the relationship between them. The general idea is that uh, individualization uh, is a prolonging of the individuation process of something that's already individuated. Whereas you would have individuation of a living being, you have individualization of that already constituted living being in uh, the formation of uh, psychic individuation or, or individualization. And we saw Simon Don uses this opposition between individuation and individualization to make sense of the Kantian terms of the empirical and transcendental subject. Um, so the empirical subject would correspond to individualization, and then the transcendental subject would correspond to individuation. Simon Don does a little bit of a digression about the relationship between the empirical and transcendental subjects or aspects of the subject and the character of a person. This is a sort of response to um, a problem in Kantian philosophy about how a subject is meant to be, can be held responsible for their moral character. It's, it's sort of, Kant kind of paints himself into a corner with respect to how that type of moral responsibility should be understood. And Simon Don uh, tries to sort of develop a, a different way of understanding the relation of, of character to the empirical and transcendental subjects. And then we saw this section on the relation to the milieu. Simon Don suggests that individualization, uh, so indi individuation and individualization can be understood in terms of the putting into question of the individual. So we have affective states or conditions, I guess we can say, that, that put the individual into question which take place at the level of individualization. So he, he points to the example of fear or uh, cosmic admiration, which you know, puts the individual into question in terms of its uh, existing individuation, as opposed to experiences that um, sort of fit into our existing framework uh, of understanding the world or our existing con <coughs> conceptualization, so that they, it, it sort of fits uh, in a familiar way into our, our habits and, and rhythm of life. And that, that would take place at the level of individuation. He talks about how this, how the relationship to others fits into this picture. And this has to do with the way that we situate ourselves in relation to others. So we experience ourselves as being old in relation to someone who's young or, or as young in relation to someone who's old. And we uh, or as, you know, strong in relation to someone who's weak or, or weak in relation to someone who's strong or and so on. Um, 
So we our our understanding of ourselves, uh, the properties that we ascribe to ourselves, are relative to other individuals, and so our uh, our understanding of ourselves relies on uh, situating ourselves in relation to others at the level of individualization. So putting ourselves into question by situating ourselves in relation to others, and this relationship between these two aspects so we have the this sort of these these experiences that put ourselves into question and then our sort of everyday experiences um these two aspects in a, in a healthy personality sort of line up with each other or they don't conflict with each other at least we can say um disorders of personality can be understood or at least some of them can be understood as uh, disorders of the relationship between these two sides. And so Simodon cites the case of the schizophrenic person who has, sees a, a woman in the street and has this emotional experience, and he, he's confused about why, what the connection is between this emotional experience and the, seeing this woman in the street. Um, he, he doesn't understand what, what the connection between the two is. And so this is a sort of disordered condition where having this emotional experience that puts himself into question is, is disjointed from the everyday categories of uh, seeing someone in, in the street and, and classifying them as a, as a woman. This is uh, sort of the, the place or one of the places where things can fall apart in uh, or come come apart, I guess, in in the psychic individualization, so that you can have disorders, psychic disorders, through different sides not lining up with each other or not um, working together in a coherent way, uh, and and I think that's uh, sort of a general principle in in Simondon's understanding of psychic reality is that it it, uh, it allows for these kinds of uh, disorders to appear through. Um, misalignment or or incoherence of different sides of the psychic reality. Um, do you mean not uh, tagging them, uh, tagging their gender as a woman? Yeah, exactly. So we have like part of the conceptual framework that we bring to to the world and to people in the world is uh, a gender. Um, we we sort of have an understanding of being able to assign a person to a given gender as like a familiar category. And uh, uh, in the case of the schizophrenic, for whatever reason, um, this experience of recognizing someone as a, as a woman um, seems to have elicited this uh, emotional experience in him that he didn't understand why, uh, why he was having this experience. And, uh, and so that's an instance of a, a misalignment between, between the, the familiar categories and the um, emotional experiences that put put the self into question okay um so yeah that's that's what we saw last time uh let's get into this week's reading um so i think this is another one of those um giant paragraphs oh it's actually not so long um but uh yeah i'll start reading a page or so and then we'll go around as usual Okay, section three, individuation, individualization, and personalization by substantialism. It could be asked if there are individuals other than physical or living individuals, and if it is possible to speak of psychical individuation. In fact, it actually seems that psychical individuation is an individualization rather than an individuation. If we agree to designate by individualization a type of process that is more restricted than individuation, insofar as it requires the support of the already individuated living being in order to develop. 
Psychical functioning is not a functioning separate from the vital, but after the initial individuation that provides a living being with its origin, there can be in the unity of the individual being two different functions, functions which are not superposed, but which are functionally relative to each other, just like the individual with respect to the associated milieu. Thought and life are two complementary, rarely parallel functions. Everything functions as if the living individual could once again be the theater of successive individuations that divide it into distinct domains. It is correct to assert that thought is a vital function with respect to a living being that would not be individualized by separating into a, a physiological being and a psychical being. The physiological and the psychical are like the individual and the complement of the individual at the moment in which a system individuates. Individualization, which is the individuation of an individuated being and results from an individuation, creates a new structuration within the individual. Thought and organic functions are the vital split along an asymmetrical rift which that is comparable to the first individuation of a system. Thought is like the individual of the individual, whereas the body is the complementary associated milieu of thought with respect to the already individuated sunolan that the living being is. When the individuated living system is in the state of internal resonance, it individualizes by splitting into thought and body. Before individualization, psychosomatic unity is a homogeneous unity. After individualization, it becomes a functional and relational unity. Individualization is merely a partial splitting in normal cases for the psychophysiological relation sustains the unity of the individuated being. Furthermore, certain functions never become solely psychical or solely somatic, and in this way they maintain in the living being the status of the individuated but not individualized being. This is the case for sexuality. This is also generally the case for the concrete inter-individual functions, like social relations, that concern the individual being. According to this path of study, the ensemble of psychical contents could be considered as the result of the resolution of a series of problems posed to the living being, problems the latter must resolve by individualizing. Psychical structures are the expression of this fractured individualization that has separated the individuated being into a somatic domain and a psychical domain. There is no identity of structures between the somatic and the psychical, but there are pairs of complementary realities that constitute living subsets on the level of the individuated being. The individuated being is expressed in partially coordinated successive somatopsychic pairs. Initially, the individuated being does not have a soul and a body. It is constructed as such by individualizing, by gradually splitting. There is no psychical individuation, properly speaking, but there is an individualization of the living being that gives rise to the somatic and the psychical. This individualization of the living being is expressed in the somatic domain by specialization and in the psychical domain by the schematization that corresponds to this somatic specialization. Each psychical schema corresponds to a somatic specialization. The body can be called the ensemble of the specializations of the living being to which psychical schematizations correspond. The psychical is the result of an ensemble of sub-individualizations of the living being, and this holds for the somatic as well. Each individuation reverberates within the living being by partially splitting it in a way that produces a pair formed by a psychical schema and a somatic specialization. The psychical schema is not the form of the somatic specialization, but the individual that corresponds to this complementary reality relative to the anterior living totality. If the living being were to individualize completely, its soul would be a society of schemas and its body would be a society of specialized organs, each carrying out a specific function. The unity of these two societies is maintained by that which does not individualize in the living being 
and consequently resists splitting in two. Individualization is all the more accentuated as the living being is subjected to increasingly critical situations in which it manages to triumph by splitting within itself. The individualization of the living being is its real historicity. Um, so yeah, this is a pretty dense passage. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, maybe to start with um, the the title of the section, um, when he talks about bisubstantialism, he's of course talking about um, the duality between mind and body, uh, or soul and body, as he sometimes says in this um, in this section. Um, and uh, and so th this bisubstantialism is what he's going to um, uh, criticize, but also wants want to explain. So he wants to explain where this sort of uh, understanding of bisubstantialism comes from. Um, so why why is it that people in the first place came up with the idea of bisubstantialism? So he's going to give um, an explanation of sort of the relative reality. Um, uh, be behind the idea of bisubstantialism, uh, but um, he's going to qualify that so it's only a relative reality. It's only um, it's only um, to some degree correct to talk about um, uh, the mind and body or soul and body as two different um, aspects of the human being, uh, and it's going to be incorrect to describe them as two separate substances. Um, and then we get, so to start with, we get this um, question of whether there is such a thing as psychical individuation. So um, is there such a thing as a, a psychical, psychical individual um, which is distinct from the physical or living individual? Uh, and Simondon's answer to that question is going to be no. There's, there is no psychical individuation in the proper sense of the term. So the, the living being... Um, uh, doesn't undergo um, uh, a further process of individuation, properly speaking. It instead undergoes individualization, so it, it's something already individuated that um, extends its process of individuation. Uh, and so, psychical individuation is, properly speaking, a, an individualization and not an individuation. Um, it's something that, that happens in an already individuated vital being a vital individual um, rather than something that uh, uh, forms a, an individual that would be independent from the vital individual. And I think, um, let me just check the, the French quickly, I think there's um, a correction in the translation if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, so this passage um, in, in the second sentence here where he says, if we agree to designate by individualization <clears throat> a type of process that is more restricted than, in, than individuation. In the French, he actually puts it the other way around, and I think that's a mistake. I think, um, uh, I think the translation is right to, to correct this. So in the French, it says, if we accept to designate by individuation a process of a type that is more restricted than individualization, which I think is is backwards. Um, I think uh, I think the correction uh, that the correct the correction that's included in the translation I think is is right. Um, but um, it's possible that it's possible that um, the correction is um, not not accurate. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, oh, it looks like my screen share just died for some reason. 
Uh, hold on a sec. Okay, there we go. Um, right. Um, so we have this um, separation between the physiological and the psychical, which is a, a relative separation. So it's um, it's only uh, insofar as you have uh, an already existing vital individual that you can have um, um, uh, a sort of separation between physiological and psychical that appears within that individual. And so within the individual, the psychical um, sort of, uh, uh, so the, the vital individual sort of uh, takes on the role of a pre-individual reality that undergoes this further individualization. And um, within the, that reality, the psychical has the role of the individual uh, and then the, uh, the physiological or the, the body has the role of the environment. Uh, and so he, he even, um, he talks a little bit later um, about uh i think it's saint augustine who um describes the the body as um a, a sort of clothing for the soul um and uh, uh so this this experience of um the body as being the external reality um associated with the the soul or the mind um is one that Simon don't wants to account for rather than just sort of dismissing. Uh, and, and so that's part of what this notion of individualization is meant to, to do is to account for that experience or that um, self-understanding uh, of uh, human reality as being split into body and soul. Um, maybe I should also mention this term sunolan, um, which we've seen a few times uh, already in this book but maybe not for a while, I think. Um, but this is a, a term from um, Aristotle's philosophy, which and it means the, the concrete reality. So um, it's the um, um, something that is uh, uh, a, a complete entity, something that's fully individuated um, is a, a sunolan. Uh, and so here, um, Simon Don uh, uses the term to describe the living being. Uh, so um, the sunolan is is what precedes the individualization within the living being. So the the living being uh, acts as this uh, concrete uh, reality, as this whole in which the psychical takes on the role of the individual, and the the physical or the the body takes on the role of the environment um let's see what else do we need to talk about in this part right and then uh so again the this so the distinction between the psychical and the somatic is um is a relative distinction also in the sense that um different functions of the human being are are never um fully one or the other so there's never something that is uh uh, completely psychical and um, uh, not at all somatic, or conversely, something that's fully somatic and not at all psychical. Uh, e each function 
that that the human being has uh, is going to be a mixture of the two or uh, an intermediate form between the two. And uh, so there's going to be some that are more psychical and or some that are more somatic uh, and then some uh, sort of halfway in between the two. But um, this is, a, again, a relative distinction rather than a, a substantial one. Um, I had a question on one of these sentences towards the end of that uh, last paragraph <clears throat> where he says each individuation reverberates within the living being by partially splitting it in a way that produces a pair formed by a psychical schema and somatic specialization. Should that be individualization? Uh, so it seems like there's only one individuation really. And afterwards you have individualization at the level of the already constituted individual. Yeah, let me check the French quickly and see if th there's a, a difference there. Uh, no, he says individuation in French too. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I would think um, actually in the in the English here in the previous part of the sentence where it says sub-individualization in French it says sub-individuation. Um, okay, that makes, I was going to ask about that too. That makes sense. So, yeah, he talks about, um, yeah, yeah, it says the psychical is the result of an ensemble of sub-individuations of the living, just as the somatic is. Uh, each individuation reverberates in the living being by uh, splitting it partially, um, etc. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, he does. He does use individuation both times in in this sentence. But it, um, you're right that it, it does seem like individualization might be better here because, um, yeah, in in the case of the living individual, there's one individuation. The the living being is individuated um, uh, once, and then individualization is a process that extends that uh, that. Uh, individuation process. So yeah, it's, this, this bit is tricky. Well, um, I think, uh, like I mentioned uh, earlier on in this passage, I think he, he um, Simon Dong gets it backwards here, or at least the editors did. I'm not sure, like, in the manuscript, maybe it was different. But uh, um, I think he mixes up the two terms at one point here. And then I think the translation mixes up the terms at one point here as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to slip and write individuation instead of individualization or vice versa. Should have individuated that term a little further. Yeah. It's maybe not a great uh, terminological choice. <laughs> it was uh, two, two terms that differ only by a couple letters. Um, I should also probably mention this bit about schematization or, or schemas, um, which uh, I think is a, a bit obscure, but um, as far as I can tell, this is um, a reference to Kant's idea of schematization, which is um, has to do with the way that uh, the categories of the understanding come to be applied to um, to physical objects and 
each of the categories has to be schematized by uh, through the imagination, uh, and and so that means that it has to be something. It has to become something that can be applied in time. Um, uh, so, like um, the the category of causation, for example, has um, uh, a temporal element that's sort of introduced through schematization, and so the the cause precedes the effect. Um, and um, yeah, this was something that um, um, is like a, a a key point in Kant scholarship, uh, the the transcendental schema of the imagination. Um, and um, I think Kassira and Heidegger had a, a debate about like how to understand this, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, but um, yeah, it's like a one of the more um, intricate parts of Kant that is uh, like debated a lot within Kant scholarship. So exactly what he meant by the schematization process is not um, not obvious, at least from an initial reading. But but yeah, so for for the purposes of this text, um, I think we can understand schematization as meaning something to do with time and imagination, I think that's probably what we need to draw from uh from the Kant uh into this text okay so i think we can go on to the next page or so if someone else would like to read yeah i can read um i guess i'll it's a pretty short paragraph so maybe i'll read until like the bottom of the next page sure sounds good personality appears to be more than relation it is what maintains the coherence of individuation and of the ongoing process of individualization. Individuation takes place only once. Individualization is as continual as perception in everyday behaviors. By contrast, personality concerns the domain of the quantum, of the critical. Structures of personality are established that last a certain amount of time, resist the difficulties they must take on, and then when they can no longer maintain individuation and individualization, collapse and are replaced by others. Personality is constructed by successive structurations that are replaced, with the new structurations integrating the subsets of the old ones and also leaving a certain number of the latter aside as unusable debris. Personality is constructed via successive crises. Its unity is Increasingly strong, the more this construction resembles a maturation in which nothing of what has been built is definitively rejected, but is, sometimes after a latency period, reintroduced into the new edifice. Individuation is unique, individual, individualization continual, and personalization discontinuous. But the discontinuity of Genesis includes the unity of the process of organizational construction. In the actual expression of the harmonious personality, one can identify the anterior stages that it takes up, takes back up by integrating them into its functional unity. Uh, St. Augustine's expression, etiam peccata, even sens, is true solely on the level of the personality's construction. Indeed, it can be said that the personality integrates even sens without supposing that there is the occasional aspect of the Felix culpa, blessed fault, which is inexplicable without resorting to a transcendence. The foundation of the problem of transcendence lies in the successive rapport of these phases of personality. All the schemata that seek to explain 
the inherence of a transcendent principle in man, or on the contrary, that want to show that everything emerges genetically from experience, ignore the initial reality of the operation of individuation. It's true that the being, to the extent that it is individuated, does not have and will never have the complete course of its explication within it. The individuated being cannot account for itself or for everything that is within itself, no, no more than it can account for its emotion facing the starry sky and the moral law within it or the principle of true judgment. This is because in its ontogenetic limits, the individuated being has not retained within it the whole of the, the whole real from which it has emerged. It is an incomplete real, but it also cannot search outside itself for another being that would be complete without it. Whether according to creation or procession, uh, the being that has allowed the individual to form has split, i.e. has become the individual and the complement of the individual. The first reality anterior to individuation cannot be recovered whole outside the existing individual. The genesis of the individual is not a creation, i.e. an absolute advent of the being, but an individuation within the being. Uh, the concept of transcendence mistakes anteriority for exteriority. The complete being, which is the origin of the individual, is both within the individual and outside it after individuation. This being has never been outside the individual, for the individual did not exist before the being has individuated. It cannot even be said that the being has individuated. There has been individuation within the being, and individuation of the being. The being has lost its unity and its totality by individuating. This is why the study of transcendence finds outside the individual and therefore uh, finds outside the individual and before it another individual that both has the appearances of the individual and those of actual and contemporaneous nature, i.e. this complement of the individual. Uh, should I keep going or? Um, yeah, we can stop there. That's fine. Um, okay. Yeah, again, this is one of these giant paragraphs with no good stopping points. So yeah, that's good as good a place as any um yeah so again there's a lot going on in the, in this page or so that we just read um so there's uh first we have this um idea of personality that comes back in and uh if you remember from last week's reading or, or the week before i think um he he talked about personality as the the unification of uh of individuation and individualization um so personality has this um uh unific unificatory function uh in in the human being um and personality also has this uh quantum character so in the sense that it uh it's structured in terms of these threshold effects and um uh it um it it has um uh these critical points so it, it, rather than being a, a a purely continuous function uh it it has these um uh threshold points where where you have these sudden qualitative changes um yeah and then this idea of personality as um, developing over time through uh, successive crises. So because because um, uh, 
because personality is structured in this threshold way, um, it means that each uh, successive um, thresholds, each time that one of these thresholds is crossed, you have um, a crisis or um, some sort of transition uh, from one personality condition to another. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I should probably mention, so critical and crisis have the same Greek root, um, which has to do with division or, or separation or something along those lines. Um, and, and so a, a critical point and a, a crisis are, are the same sort of idea. Um, right, and then there's this idea of um, personality as incorporating what came before. Uh, and, and this is, um, so this is personality insofar as it's uh, a kind of maturity or, or maturation um so maturation is uh is personality insofar as it incorporates everything that came before um so you have um these uh successive crises of personality or transitions of personality um but inso insofar as the development of personality is a maturation it won't uh it won't sort of give up anything that happened before it will incorporate that eventually into the the whole structure of personality and uh so this is a, a sort of um ideal condition i guess you can say of personality that we would want um uh we would want our personality to be able to incorporate everything that we have experienced and every um condition that we've been in throughout our lives uh and and so it would it would not um reject anything as being foreign to it. And so this is, this is where um, uh, Augustine's expression here about even sins. Um, uh, I don't remember this passage exactly, but I think the idea is that um, um, even sins sort of go towards making up the personality of a person. Uh, so even, even, uh, sort of the worst parts of ourselves um, are part of our personality. Uh, and um, I think for, for Augustine, this would have the sense of the, um, um, what here Simon Don quotes as the Felix Kulpa, the, the sort of um, uh, blessed mistake, um, so that, you know, because of providence, certain sins might lead you eventually towards the the truth um uh but uh simon don uh rejects that that explanation as being um uh as requiring this transcendence so it requires something like providence or um a divine uh intervention in in the world to uh to explain why our um sins or, or mistakes might end up being, um, uh, uh, you know, blessed mistakes in the end. And then, yeah, so that leads into this long sort of digression about transcendence. Um, and so I think this is probably the, the most or the closest that Simon Don gets to, um, talking about like a, a sort of philosophy of religion in in this part of the book um 
um, because here he he's talking about um, whether whether we can. So the the question of transcendence versus imminence would be the question of whether um, whether we can explain human uh, reality uh, in in terms of uh, this genetic explanation from on the basis of experience, uh, or whether we need to posit something like an immortal soul uh, or something that transcends uh, empirical reality and uh, would be sort of implanted in the human being. And Simon Dong is going to argue that this is a sort of a false opposition, uh, that, that it, um, uh, it, each of the terms is, is sort of um, uh, a non-solution to the problem, or, or it, it, uh, it brings up more problems than it ends up solving. Uh, and we'll see that in, in more detail as we go along. Um, but the idea is that um, Simon Dong is going to um, is going to want to say that uh, it's only through individuation and individualization that we can have uh, um, that we can understand the the coming into being of an, of the human being, um, and and so we can't um, we can't treat the human being as a, a sort of uh, self-subsistent substance, uh, something that, that would be a, a sort of coherent whole without, um, without dependence on anything else. Um, and uh, so there is each of these uh, options, either the imminent or the transcendent option, sort of um, presupposes the existence of, of an individual um, already constituted uh, as an explanation for the human um, individual or human reality, uh, and and so it, it's sort of supposing what it's supposed to explain, uh, um, and and doesn't really explain, uh, doesn't really provide an explanation uh, because of that. And then we can also note that there is a, another reference to Kant here when he talks about the emotion. Uh, of course, the famous Kant passage where where he, he talks about how. Um, uh, these two things fill in with more admiration he thinks about them um uh so these are sort of the the two um uh the two sides of these two sides uh are both uh worthy of admiration and um elicit um wonder uh and the, the sort of the beginnings of philosophy uh according to kant um but um so for Simon Don, that we we have to recognize um, that each of these um, experiences indicates something that it goes beyond the constituted individual. Um, so it, it's something else, like uh, the human individual as something fully uh, constituted and individualized uh, can't account for either of these phenomena or these experiences uh, from within itself. But it's only on the basis of the process of individuation um, through which uh, the pre-individual being comes to be individuated and comes to form a human that uh, that we can account for these phenomena. Oh, maybe another translation note that I'll make here too is is um, we've seen this I think or we've talked about this before 
um, with the translation of being uh, and the being. It's um, so in French you use l'être for um, uh, you you can either translate that as being or the being, um, uh, and uh, in certain cases one translation uh, might be better than the other. Um, and so here in in this passage in the the middle of this paragraphs, um, uh, where he says, "Where is that?" Um, yeah, so about the halfway down the page, it cannot even be said that the being has individuated. There has been individuation within the being and individuation of the being. The being has lost its unity and its totality by individuating. Here, I would translate some of these as, as being rather than the being. So I would say there has been individuation within being and individuation of being. Being has lost its unity and its totality by individuating. Um, so the pre-individual being is... Um, uh, a sort of indeterminate, which um, I, I would not translate with the being. Uh, I would use the being for um, like a living being, an entity. Um, uh, but yeah, so that's something to keep in mind when you see the being, you can always uh, think that it, it could also be translated as being. Okay, so we can continue. Um, let's see, where did we finish? Um, I think we're at but the image of the supreme being, uh, if someone else would like to read from there. Uh, I could read again. Yeah, we're, you're going to make us do all the work? <laughs> okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, but the image of the supreme being cannot become coherent because it is impossible to make coincide or even to render compatible aspects like the personal character of the supreme being and its positive... Uh, whoops personal character of the Supreme Being and his character of positive eternity and omnipresence, which give it a cosmicity. The study of eminence is doomed to the same ultimate failure, for it would like to recreate a world starting from what is founded in the individuated being. The aspect of personality is then predominant, but the cosmicity is obscured. The individuated being is thus found to be relative to the ensemble of the world in a double relation. As a being that includes nature, naturing nature and as a being that is a mode of natured nature the relation of naturing nature and of natured nature is graspable graspable with just as much difficulty in the study of the eminence within the individuated being as that of god as personal being active agent and god is omnipresent and eternal i.e as endowed with cosmicity both the search for transcendence and the search for eminence aim to recreate the whole being with one of these two symbols of the incomplete being that individuation separates. Before, before posing the critical question prior to any ontology, philosophical thought must pose the problem of complete reality, which is anterior to the individuation from whence the subject of critical thought and of ontology emerges. Veritable first philosophy is not that of the subject, nor that of the object, nor that of a god or nature searched for according to a principle of transcendence or eminence, but that of a real, an a real anterior to individuation, a real that cannot be sought in the objectivated object or in the subjectivated subject, but at the limit between the individual and what remains outside it, i.e. according to 
a mediation suspended between transcendence and eminence. The same reason that makes the study according to transcendence or eminence futile also makes the search uh, the search for the essence of the individuated being in the soul or in the body futile. This search has led to materializing the body and spiritualizing consciousness, i.e. to substantializing both terms after having separated them. The term body after the separation conserves elements and functions of individuation like sexuality. It also conserves aspects of individualization like wounds, illnesses, and infirmities. Nevertheless, it seems that individuation dominates in the body insofar as it is a separated body, one that has its life and its death apart from other bodies, apart from other bodies that can be wounded or diminished without another body being wounded or diminished. Conversely, consciousness grasped as spirit contains the basis of personal identity. First, as an independence of consciousness with respect to the known material elements or objects of action. Body and consciousness then, in some sense, become two separate individuals between which a dialogue is established, and the total being is conceived as a reunification of two individuals. The materialization of the body consists in seeing in it nothing but a pure given, a result of the capacity of the species and of the milieu's influences. The body is then like an element of the milieu. It is the closest milieu for the soul, which becomes the being itself, as if the body enveloped the soul. This is what uh, St. Augustine calls carne vestum, fleshly clothing. Consciousness is spiritualized in the sense that expression becomes clear, deliberate, and reflective thought, willed according to a spiritual principle. Expression is fully uprooted from the body, in particular the gaze, which is perhaps what conveys the most profound and refined expression of the human being, becomes the eyes of the flesh. However, the eyes as the seat of the gaze's expression cannot be said to be of the flesh. They are the, the support and milieu of expression, but they are not of flesh in the way that a stone is of quartz or mica. They are not merely organs of a body, but the intentional transparency of one living being to other living beings. Uh, the, the body can be said to be of flesh as a possible corpse and not as a real living being. Sorry, my cat is uh, trying to jump up on my table and steal my food. <laughs> well, that's probably a good place to stop anyway, so um, let's, let's stop there. Um, Yeah, so I keep saying this, but there's a lot going on in this passage. Um, so we start from, so we, we were talking about um, the opposition between transcendence and imminence. And um, so this uh, calls up the, so the, the option of transcendence would be the option for um, something like, um, uh, a supreme being as um um as like a, a a principle behind the formation of uh, a human individual um and simondo argues against this position on the grounds that uh this um 
this character of the supreme being has to um is is incoherent in the sense that it has to um sort of combine together the the properties of the individual and of the pre-individual in one entity um so on the one hand the supreme being is supposed to have a personal nature uh supposed to be a a, a person uh and then on the other hand uh the supreme being is also supposed to be um eternal and omnipresent uh and so it has this cosmic character um and and Simodo argues that these two um sides or these two uh characteristics that are supposed to uh hold of the supreme being are incoherent um and so ultimately the the um this option of transcendence sort of um tries to explain individuation of the living being uh sorry of the human being um through this uh pre-existing individual um and and so it, it doesn't actually give us an explanation of individuation it, it sort of presupposes that there's this already individuated being the the supreme being and then it uses that to explain the individuation of human beings um but it doesn't uh so it, it's a, a non-genetic account of individuation it's one in which individuation is already presupposed to start with um and then conversely the uh the option for imminence uh so the one that would try to explain everything in human reality on the basis of uh something arising from experience uh or from empirical reality uh like absent something like a, a supreme being um this option uh likewise presupposes the pre-existence of the individual it, it it takes the the already individuated human being and tries to explain everything about that the individuated being uh from what's contained in it from uh from the already individuated being um so there's uh again sort of presupposing the existence of the individuated being and then trying to um explain the the individuation on that basis uh and and it sort of goes in a circle because it it starts from the the already individuated human being and then tries to explain the the human being's individuation on that basis again uh and then we have this bit this uh sort of allusion to spinoza here so the um in in the french it's actually in latin and so it's even more obvious that it's um uh, an allusion to spinoza um but so there's a spinozistic terms of um um oh actually sorry i'm wrong it, it's in french in the french text um but uh um in in spinoza there's this pair of terms uh natura naturata and natura naturans um which are um nature um natured nature and naturing nature it would be the the sort of literal translation as as it is in the text here but the idea is um uh we have nature insofar as it consists of already constituted entities on the one hand uh so that's natured nature and then we have nature insofar as it consists in um the formation of entities uh or the constitution of entities uh on the other hand and that's natura naturans or naturing nature um and 
so here in this uh, in this passage, Simondo is um, um, he's appealing to this uh, distinction. Uh, he's saying that in the uh, option of imminence, you end up with the same problem or a, a problem of similar difficulty. Um, uh, which is the relation between these two sides of nature. Um, um, so the, the individuated being um, is, um, so the individuated being is sort of um, incorporated into nature in these two senses or in these two aspects. Uh, but the relation between these two aspects is, is obscure um, in the same way that in the transcendent account, uh, the relation between God as person and God as um, uh, pre-individual reality or um, uh, as a cosmic principle um, is uh, is obscure. Um, so both both attempts, uh, either the, tra the transcendent or the imminent attempt, they both um, start from uh, one side of the uh, relationship between individual and milieu, and they try to uh, um, sort of recreate the whole out of the part, um, which is not something that Simondon thinks is possible. And uh, we have here, Simondon describes um, these sides of the uh, of reality as symbols, um, and we've seen this usage before, uh, and then there's a footnote that's going to come in the next couple pages where he actually explains this again. Um, but uh, symbol here refers to the ancient Greek practice of um, having a, a token made of a, a, a like a piece of stone or pottery or whatever that was broken in half, uh, and then each party would keep one half, and then uh, they would be able to recognize each other by um, putting the two halves together, and their descendants would maintain that relationship um, by... Uh, um uh the greek name like for symbols uh it, it's a symbol on yeah um let me see if i can find the uh uh the um yeah i'm gonna see if i can find anything on uh this practice of um um sharing this token yeah there's a wikipedia page here uh yeah or a wiktionary actually uh that preview is not very helpful um but yeah so it's um this practice of um um sharing the this token um that um you split in half and then uh it's um inherited by the the two descendants of the of the parties that that share the the relationship um so like um uh this would be especially like uh, the relationship between a, a guest and a host they would um that relationship was something that um had a, a religious significance in ancient greece and so there was like a, an ongoing obligation um uh in the families of the guests and the hosts to maintain that relationship and and this symbol on allowed them to um or served as a token of that ongoing relationship uh so 
Um, Simon Doe always uses the term symbol, I, or I think always. Um, um, he, he generally uses the term symbol to refer to um, some aspect of, a, of reality that is complementary to some other aspect. Uh, and, and especially he talks about uh, the way that the individual and the associated milieu are complementary to each other. So they, they're each half or um, each uh, a, por a portion of the pre-individual reality that splits into individual and associated milieu. Uh, and so in that sense, they, they're symbols of each other. Right. And there's that passage that I mentioned earlier where um, Augustine talks about um, the body as the fleshly clothing of the soul. Um, so, again, this idea of uh, the body as uh, the environment or the milieu in, and then the soul as the individual within that milieu. Okay, so we can go on to the next bit from, uh, I think, from The Body Can Only Be Said on the top of 301, uh, if someone else would like to read. Mm, okay, uh, sounds like no one else is interested in reading today. I can read. Oh, sure, okay. Thanks. All right, welcome. The body can only be said to be of flesh as a possible, is that right place? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, it's... And, and not as a real living being. Every somatopsychic dualism consider, consi considers the body to be dead, which is what allows it to be reduced to a matter. Noma Sema, the body prison, as Plato calls it, Clitus 400b, the spiritualization of consciousness operates inversely to that of materialization of the body. The body is materialized to the extent what is identified with its instantaneous and consequently unexpressive physical reality. Consciousness is spiritualized to the extent what it is identified with a timeless reality. While the body is drawn towards the instant and reduced to it, consciousness expands to eternity. It becomes spiritual substance ten tending toward the state of non-becoming. Death, which serves the soul from the body, leaves the body to essential instant instantaneity, while as the soul is freed, freed into absolute eternity. To consider that death is a separation of the soul and the body, to know the being through the uh, presence of its death, and to preface uh, the knowledge of the being with a description of its body substantially. After death is of some sense to consider the being is already that during its very existence. For by substantialism would only be true in the hypothesis of the death that would conserve consciousness intact. This reductive reversal of time that permits seeing the living being in terms of what it will be after death implies begging the question insofar as one sets out despite everything from the living being, from this edifice of life, that the expression of personality in somatopsychic inertes, the experience of what is rarest and most elevated in vital becoming is what's, what's used to intact, enact the dissociation of the soul and the body. The bi-substantialist reduction broadly make use of vital experience at first, then turns its back on this initial experience and turns back against it, 
a way of the abstract scheme of the dead being. The notion of body and the notion of soul are two reductive notions, since they replace the individual being, which is not a substance which, with a pair of substances, spreading as many of substances together as one likes with a schemata of interaction as subtle as one could imagine will not succeed in recreating initial broken unity. The somatopsychic distinction cannot go further than that of the pair of symbols. In the living individual, there are almost purely somatic structures and functions, at least in the sense in which materialism could understand it. There are also almost purely psych psychical functions. But above all, but above all, psychosomatic functions. The model of the living being is the psychosomatic, the psychical, and the somatic are merely borderline cases that are never available in the pure state. What is eliminated from the living being via vice-substantialist reduction is precisely the set of median structures and functions, like the unitary functions of the expression of expression and its integration. The sprogsons by substantialism has led to the bisection of function, like that of memory in the distinction between pure memory and habit memory. But the same study of memory shows that pure memory and habit memory are really borderline cases. Pure memory and habit memory are subtended by a network of significations that holds for the living being and other living beings. The position of sensation and perception still expresses the, the bisubstantialist preoccupation. Sensation would be sensorial. For example, somatic, uh, i.e., uh, i.e., somatic, while per perception would involve a psychical activity that collects and interprets sense data. This supposition even, uh, even extends to the that between feeling and the faction. However, this opposition is not caused by their belonging to two separate substances, but by two types of functioning. On the contrary, if one compares science to perception, perception is what becomes somatic, while science is a psychical. Both science and perception are, in fact, psychosomatic. They, they both suppose the, an initial encounter of the subject being and the world in a situation that calls the being into question. The only difference involves the fact that perception corresponds to the resolution of an encounter without the preliminary technical elaboration, while science stems from an encounter by way of a, the technical operation. Science is a technical perception, an extent brighter perception in a circumstance, circumstance that supposes a preliminary elabor, el, elaboration but actually responds to a new engagement. When water rises into the water, Pump techniques suffices, but when water stops writing, science is necessary. Technical excesses is profitable for the development of the sciences, it's just uh, as along of the, the tendencies is necessary for the development of the perception. Since this excess and this alone make men once again face the need to stabilize the rapport between subject and the world by way of perceptive. Signification or scientific discovery. Finally, the opposition between man and animal, which is erected into a dualistic principle, originated into the somo somatopsy, sick, chic opposition itself. With respect to, 
to men who perceives the animal perpetually seems to feel without being able to elevate itself to the level of the representation of the object, separated from contact with the object. However, in the animal, there is also a relative opposition between instinctual behaviors which draw their direction and their orientation from the pre-given schematisms and behaviors organize the reaction, thus revealing the establishment of definite presence to the world, along with the possibility of conflict. Instinctual behaviors are those that unfold, not without adaptation, since behavior does not negate adaptation, but without preliminary conflict. It could be said the instinctual behaviors one in which the element of the solution are contained in the structure of the ensemble constituted by the milieu and the individual. On the contrary, a behavior organized reaction is one that implies the intention of a structure on behalf of the living being. Nevertheless, organized reactions suppose drives, but they add something to the situation on the level of the resolution. Drives the tendencies that derives from them if objects are present. Always play the role of the motor, the role of motors. The difference from so-called human behaviors reside in the fact that motivation by instincts generally remains feasible in behaviors when an animal is concerned and the observer is a human, whereas motivations that drive human behavior cannot be easily detected for another human as an observer. Or the, an observer. The difference is more so of level of than of nature by conflating simple instinctu instinctual behaviors in the animal with the conflict of the reactions that will come them. We improperly join the aspects of individuation and the aspects of individualization. However, it is correct that the behaviors arising from the individuation are more numerous, more e easily observable than the behaviors individualization, but it is incorrect that the former are the only behaviors. Every individuation supposes an individuation, but the former adds something to the latter. The, the error stems from the fact that we search for behaviors that would not be instinctual. Nevertheless, when an absolute absence drives leaves the being in an anorexic state, no further behavior is possible. The finality of behavior is replaced by, the, by absolute indistinction, prostration and the absence of orientation. The opposition between man and animal, which is unfounded as a new implicit substantialism to the basics of centralism by means of which we give individuality to the body and the soul in man. Maybe that's enough? Yes, yeah, that's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, this is one of these giant paragraphs that have no, um, no good stopping points. So um, let's see, where did we start? Um, Right. Um, so we have this um, opposition. We, we have the starting point is the somatopsychic unity um, for Simon Don. Uh, and then uh, the, the bodily and the spiritual um, or, or um, body and soul uh sort of arise as uh limit cases um of experiences um that are ultimately always uh, somatopsychic uh, so they're they're both bodily and uh psychical at the same time um 
and then we we have this um in in bisubstantialism in in the idea that um the soul and the body are two separate substances that have some sort of interaction with each other um you end up with uh this spiritualization of consciousness and a materialization of the body so the body is identified just with um uh, uh this sort of um uh instantaneous physical reality so it, it's just um like if you take a, a time slice of a body it's just this um sort of inert piece of meat that uh has no um sort of uh uh intellectual or spiritual or psychical properties to it uh and then you um you attach onto that inert piece of meat you attach um this uh soul that has the the properties of eternity and um um that uh as simono says here it tends towards a state of non-becoming so it uh it it takes on this um uh state of eternity um and and so what you're effectively doing when you uh treat the human being in this bisubstantial way you're effectively treating the human being as already dead uh, as already separated into body and soul um and, and so you're treating the body as a a sort of uh a, a corpse that uh, uh uh or a corpse in waiting i guess you could say um as as something that uh is essentially um inert and then you treat the the soul as something that is essentially eternal and uh only sort of contingently related to the body um and this this bisubstantialism is a sort of uh begging the question for simon Dome because you start from the living being um um you start from the living being as the psychosomatic unity uh and then um you sort of um revert back to this understanding of the the living being or, or the human being as um this composite of the dead body and the the eternal soul um you by doing that you're you're uh, sort of um undoing the unity that you started with uh, so it's only it's only on the basis of um this initial unity that you can understand something like the interaction of uh body and soul uh but then uh you turn around and deny that unity which is what allows you, for you to understand that interaction in the first place and and so simondo argues that um any any number of substances, no matter how, like whether you want to posit there is two substances or or twenty or a thousand, and no matter what sort of interaction you you imagine between those substances, uh, you're never going to be able to reconstitute the initial somatopsychic unity. Um, so it's it's um, it's only if you stay at the level of the somatopsychic unity uh, and uh, avoid this uh substantialization that you can actually understand human uh human reality um as opposed to um 
sort of breaking it up into these abstract substances. Yeah, this is definitely related to um, uh, philosophy of mind questions about um, um, the relationship between um, mind and body and uh, um, whether that we can uh, understand them as substances and so on. Yeah, and so Simon Don would criticize any of these positions that are um, um, either uh, that are going to posit the mind or body as substances and, and try to account for um, the relationship between them. Uh, and then there's this bit on Dachsan. Um, um, I wish Alyosha were here um, to uh, defend Bertsan here, but um, uh, Simon Don argues that, that Bertsan um, takes on this dualistic or, or bisubstantialist position uh, in this distinction between pure memory and habit memory. Um, and and uh, you can sort of extend this case or this argument to, I think, uh, a lot of Bergson's work where you have this opposition between um, uh, duration and uh, the spatial, um, where um, the, the spatial uh, or... Um, the the geometrical um, sort of corresponds to the um, the role of intelligence or um, um, habit or any of these principles that are involved in um, interaction with the the everyday world, whereas pure time is uh, is sort of um, distinct from that interaction with the everyday world and and is a a, a second uh, principle that that has this distinction um, whether whether we're Bersan should be interpreted as um, positing these as two separate substances, I think, is a, another question. Um, but that's how Simon Don interprets uh, his work. Uh, and then, so then he, he brings up the example of um, sensation and perception uh, and this idea, this sort of um, uh, commonplace idea that uh, sensation would be something bodily and then perception would be something psychical so that um, uh, you would uh, have sensations through your sense organs and then perception would be some sort of intellectual construction or um, operation on those uh, the data provided by your sense organs. And uh, again, Simono argues that this is um, uh, a sort of um, um, a sort of misunderstanding or, or substantialization of, of what is uh, originally a somatopsychic unity. And he, he illustrates this by talking about the way that um, you can relativize this uh, opposition between the somatic and the psychical. So if perception is uh, the psychical in relation to sensation, um, then you can sort of repeat the same uh, construction and you can say that um, perception is the somatic in relation to science as the psychical. Um, and uh, what this shows, what this shows is that um, the, this opposition between uh, somatic and psychical, it, it has to be understood in relative terms and rather than uh, in terms of an opposition between two different substances. Um, and then he sort of briefly talks about um, science uh, as uh, an extension of perception uh, and um, uh, 
having to do with this uh, preliminary technical elaboration, and he he just alludes to something that he um, he developed in more detail in the um, technical objects book uh, that we read uh, uh, months ago now. Um, but in that book, he talks about how um, sort of the the emergence of science has to do with the limits of technical action. Uh, and in particular, he talks about this uh, example of the water pump. Uh, so um, you can you can produce pumps that operate through atmospheric pressure um, that will raise water up to I think it's like ten point three meters or something like that uh, above sea level. Um, but then if you if you just build a taller pump or like a a, a bigger pump and you try to um, pump water higher than that level, the water actually won't go any higher than than um, 10.3 whatever meters above sea level. Uh, and, and this has to do with the relationship between atmospheric pressure and water density and so on. Um, um, but um, it's when it's when the the possibility of technical action through constructing pumps um, meets this obstacle, this unexpected obstacle, that uh, that you end up having to develop scientific knowledge, where you start to understand uh, the operation of pumps through um, some principles of like hydrodynamics or understanding of atmospheric pressure and so on. And you, so science emerges where technical action meets this unexpected obstacle for Simon Don. And so that's what that bit about the water pump has, uh, is, is talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's sort of just alluded to in, in passing here in this book, but there's more um, um, development of this example in the, uh, uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects in the third part of that book. Uh, let's see, what else do we have in this bit? Um, right, and then we get into this opposition between um, human and animal, uh, which again um, is uh, understood in terms of um, this opposition between bodily and psychical. So the animal would be the, the bodily and the human would be the psychical or would be like an animal plus some other psychical substance. Um, and uh, uh, of course, Simon Don was going to criticize this uh, conception of, of animal-human relationships, and he's going to suggest here that um, even if we understand um, the animal as being motivated by instinctual factors, uh, and and so um, in some sense. Um, uh, if we want to, if we want to identify this instinctual side or this instinctual factor in animal behavior with the bodily, we can uh, we can do that. We can we can regard animals as being uh, bodily in that sense. <clears throat> but um, this doesn't um, this doesn't mean that animal behavior is is sort of fully understandable in terms of this instinctual operation or these instinctual factors uh there's this other side of animal behavior which is um um what Simondo here calls the relative opposition between instinctual behaviors and behaviors of organized reaction so we have this um um 
this operation in which an, an animal um, selects from various possible instinctual behaviors in a way that solves a problem. Um, and this, of course, you know, depending on which type of animal, you get different sort of um, degrees of problem-solving behavior. But um, obviously, animals have, face all kinds of different problems in their uh, in their life of you know how to find food, how to find a mate, how to avoid predators where to find shelter and so on um they 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 have to um uh sort of adapt their instinctual repertoire behaviors to uh, a changing environment and um solve problems and there's some pretty elaborate actually um problem solving abilities that certain animals have like uh uh, crows, uh, there's like famous experiments with crows um, that like will use one stick to pick up another stick to pick up the piece of meat in the jar or whatever, um, and uh, figure out how to how to use one tool to get a second tool to uh, to get the food that they want. Um, and uh, I think it's in Japan where these crows figured out that they can. Um, drop like oysters or something onto the road and then the cars will run over the the shell and break it open and then they can pick up the uh the the pieces um pick up the the meat inside the the oyster or whatever it is um so yeah crows have these um pretty uh advanced problem solving abilities and uh um you know you can see that in in various primates and uh um octopuses actually also are have like advanced problem solving behavior um kind of surprisingly um but um yeah there's a a wide variety of, of different um um problem solving abilities uh that uh that uh, different animals display and so you can't just reduce animal behavior to like a a, a fixed set of um instinctual abilities that they would uh just be sort of uh uh set off uh to to pursue this uh instinctual behavior right oh actually i didn't know that yeah so angus has, has mentioned here that octopuses use groupers to hunt fish um i did not uh i did not know that that's interesting um yeah so they uh um and and it's especially surprising because octopuses are generally solitary. The uh, most other animals that we recognize as having like uh, um, advanced problem-solving abilities and and what we would describe as intelligence are uh, social animals, um, whereas octopuses are uh, are solitary uh, in general. Um, so yeah, it's it's and also they um, like they're evolutionary lineage diverged from humans like 200 million years ago or something like that so they're very distantly related um to uh uh you know primates or or even uh other uh animals that we would grant like uh, a high degree of intelligence to so they uh they uh developed intelligence independently uh from all these other uh, organisms that have uh, higher degrees of intelligence. But that's uh, a bit of an aside, but I thought it was worth um, <clears throat> illustrating a little bit what Simone was talking about here. Um, right, so is there anything else to um, 
yeah, maybe we can go on to the next bit here um, and see if we can finish this section uh, today because I think we have about a page left. Yeah, let's let's try to finish this section if someone else would like to read from uh, the top of 303. Uh, I can read. Where, uh, where did we leave off again? Um, Are we I on think, the new paragraph? Yeah, I think, uh, um, yes, I think so. Uh, furthermore, there is a form of monism that is merely a bisubstantialism in which one of the terms has been obliterated. To say that only the body is determinative or that only the mind, esprit, is real is to suppose implicitly that there is another term for the individual, a reduced term deprived of its whole consistency, but nevertheless real as a useless or negated understudy. The loss of the role is not the loss of the being, and this being exists sufficiently to subtract from the dominant term a certain number of functions and to expel them back outside the representation of the veritable individual. Materialist monism or spiritual monism are in fact asymmetrical dualisms. They impose a mutilation of the complete individual being. The only veritable monism is the one in which unity is grasped at the time when the possibility of a diversity of functioning and structures is perceived. The only veritable monism is that which instead of following an implicit dualism that it seems to refuse, contains the dimension of a possible dualism, but against the background of the being that cannot be overshadowed. This monism is a genetic, for genesis alone presupposes unity that encompasses plurality. Becoming is grasped as a dimension of the individual starting from the time in which the individual did not exist as an individual. Dualism can only be avoided if one starts from a phase of the being anterior to individuation in order to relativize individuation by situating it among the phases of the being. The only compatibility of duality and unity is in the genesis of the being, in ontogenesis. In a certain sense, it can thus be said that the different notions of monism and of pluralism arise from a shared postulate one according to which the being is substance in the beginning, i.e. exists as individuated before every operation and every genesis. Both monism and dualism, therefore, put themselves in the impossible situation of rediscovering an effective genesis, since they wish to make a genesis emerge from the already individuated being as a result of individuation. Nevertheless, the individual emerges from individuation, but the former neither contains the latter nor fully expresses it. This does not mean that the individual must be devalued relative to an initial reality that is richer than it, but the individual is not the only aspect of the being. It is only the whole being when it is associated with its complement, the milieu, which is engendered at the same time as the individual. Furthermore, the irreversibility of the ontogenetic process prohibits one from going back from the system posterior to individuation toward the system anterior to individuation. There are two errors in substantialism, that of mistaking the part for the origin of the whole by seeking it, by seeking in the individual the origin of individuation, and that of wanting to reverse the course of ontogenesis by making individuated existence emerge from individuated individuating existence emerge from individuated substance. Right, so this bit is um, 
largely sort of restating some of the basic um, principles that, that he set out in the introduction to the book uh, that, that we read many months ago now. Um, and uh, so the, the basic idea, um, uh, the basic principle here is that um, you can only um, grasp the true reality, the, the, the whole reality of, uh, of a being um, through Genesis uh, and through situating the um, individuated reality, the individuated being as one phase of being rather than the whole of being. Uh, and, and so um, the, the individuated being arises from a pre-individual reality and is always relative to uh, um, uh, an associated milieu which is not individuated um, and, and so um, it's only by holding on to this uh, genetic understanding of of reality that you can avoid uh, this dualism uh, that um, that um, sort of tries to reconstruct uh, one side of the opposition uh, on the basis of the other. Um, and so this bisubstantialism uh, makes these two errors of, on the one hand, uh, taking the individuated being as the origin of the individual. Um, and, and as we saw earlier, this, um, um, this idea of, uh, this sort of vicious circle that you end up in if you uh if you try to explain the individual on the basis of what's con only contained in the individual uh, and then the second error is um this idea of um starting from the individuated substance the already individuated substance and then trying to explain individuation uh on that basis, uh, which would sort of reverse the course of ontogenesis, which proceeds from individuation uh, and uh, uh, to from individuation to the individuated being, uh, and so these are the the two errors of of the substantialist uh, point of view. Yeah, there's definitely um, resonances here with the uh, pluralism equals monism. Uh, uh, idea that that um, uh, in a, a thousand plateaus um, and uh, it, yeah I, I'm not sure if uh, if Deleuze actually read this part of the book um, because I don't think he, he ever cites it directly but yeah there's definitely um, um, like uh, an easy comparison to make between those two uh, passages okay so I think we can um, end here for today and then pick up from uh, section four next time uh, at the bottom of 304 if, uh, if that works for everyone. Sounds good. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you everyone for uh, joining in today and uh, see you all next week. Thanks, Nan. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.